sermon text this morning is uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as we begin a series through this gospel. And as we know, there are four gospels in the Bible. Uh, These are books that record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, each one of them uh, focuses on a unique aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. The Gospel of John is unique among the four because John's Gospel uh, does not have, for example, a a birth narrative of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. Uh, We might refer to the birth narrative as the Christmas story. Uh, John also doesn't record Jesus' baptism uh, nor the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room. John doesn't record uh, Jesus' ascension. And also, it's not, what's not included in this gospel is any parables of Jesus. And that's striking because if you're familiar with uh, Matthew and Luke especially, there are many, many parables recorded in those two gospels. However, in saying that, John does include aspects of Jesus' life and ministry that are not included in the other uh, three gospels. For example, John alone uh, teaches about the changing of water into wine, which is a Presbyterian's favorite Bible story. Uh, John alone records Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Remember the Pharisee that came to Jesus by night to ask Jesus very deep theological questions. Only John records Jesus' encounter with the woman at Samar- of Samaria, woman at the well, And even that was a very deep theological conversation that Jesus had with her. And only John records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And wonderfully, uh, John's gospel includes Jesus' deep theological teachings during his final week on earth, that Passion Week. It's uh, teachings found in John chapters 14 through 17. This section includes Jesus' high priestly prayer and you know, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, you know that these chapters are almost entirely red. As we point out the differences among the Gospels, it's important to also underline the fact that none of the Gospels contradict each other. But instead, uh, these inspired historical accounts of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, of the most important person that ever lived, uh, they each highlight different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. You can liken it to something like turning a globe of the earth. And as you're turning it, you're seeing all the different countries, the different sides of it. See, it's the same globe, but we're seeing different aspects of it. And it's the same with the four Gospels. It's the same Christ. It's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. But The Holy Spirit in each of the Gospels is revealing different aspects of our salvation. That globe is is being turned. And John's Gospel uniquely reveals that Jesus is God. He came in the flesh during his earthly ministry. And this is why uh, Martin Luther, when he spoke about John's Gospel, and he preached often from John's Gospel, Luther said, this is the unique, uh, tender genuine chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the letter to the Romans, 
and the Gospel of John survive, Christianity would be saved. Some of the most uh, well-known and best-loved verses in the Bible, we know, are found in John's Gospel, and some of you might have memorized uh, these verses. There are so many to choose from. For example, John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the baptizer saw Jesus and exclaimed that wonderful exclamation, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John 3.16, very well-known verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 6, verse 35, a passage that we refer to often when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And John eleven twenty five, a favorite verse that we refer to, especially during memorial services, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And lastly, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are so many more, so many more passages that you and I can refer to in John's gospel that we have memorized that are close to our hearts. And as we think about John's gospel, and especially many of us thinking about being back in school and, and writing papers for classes, and I'm reminded being back in school as well, how important it is to have a clear thesis statement in your paper. Uh, students, some of you might have already written papers for this uh, school year. Maybe you have one due tomorrow that you're thinking about at this very moment. Well, make sure you have a very clear thesis or, or purpose statement, a statement that explains what you're writing about and, and what you're defending throughout your paper. Very wonderfully, uh, John tells us the purpose of his writing. He has just such a thesis statement in his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's purpose in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show that Jesus is the Son of God and to cause us thereby to put our trust in him so that we may have life in his name. A.W. Pink explains it this way. He says, in this book we are shown that the one who was heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds who walked this earth for 33 years who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, and who 40 days later departed from these scenes, was none other 
than the Lord of glory. The evidence for this is overwhelming. The proofs almost without number. And the effect of contemplating them must be to bow our hearts in worship before the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Thomas said in that upper room, my Lord and my God. And he was given eyes to see and ears to hear. So best we can understand when we uh, read John's gospel and study it historically, this gospel was written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was written as a kind of evangelism, uh, specifically evangelism primarily to Jews because Jews uh, do not believe that Jesus is God. And so John was writing to uh, convince those who did not believe that Jesus is God. And we think that because of all of the references to Old Testament history in John's gospel. All these references would uh, presume some knowledge of the Old Testament for the original readers. And we can actually you know, contrast this uh, thesis or purpose statement with another statement that John gives in one of his letters. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, toward the end of the Bible, in that letter, compare it to the purpose statement that we just read from John's Gospel. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, he says, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, John pointing out that by knowing Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, we can know that we have eternal life. And so, as we consider John's gospel and his purpose for writing, what kinds of application points can we draw out? First, we draw out the application that we are to worship Christ because he is very clearly the Son of God. And as the divine second person of the Trinity, he is worthy of our worship. We're also to gain assurance and joy because as John so clearly says that by believing we have life in his name. Not just eternal life and future glory, but life now, abundant life by the Holy Spirit that we can enjoy communion and fellowship here in this present moment with the Lord of glory. And thirdly, we are to seek to live in obedience to Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he, the Lord of glory, is worthy of our worship. And he also commands our obedience. And so with that, let's look at the first uh, three verses of John's Gospel. Noting first that uh, John describes Jesus as eternal. Jesus is eternal. John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see here in this first verse that John takes us back in time. He takes us back in time before the incarnation, before even the creation of all things. And there he points us to Christ's eternality. The gospel begins with John's conclusion in mind that Jesus Christ is God. Remember John's purpose statement in writing, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so right at the beginning of his gospel, John points to Jesus' divinity. 
And he does it by connecting Christ with creation. Connecting Christ with God who created all things out of nothing. And the way that John does this is he does this by echoing the familiar opening words of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I heard a, a case once made by a theologian that uh, he, he believes that it would be more proper for John to be the first book of the New Testament rather than Matthew. Matthew has traditionally been the first book of the New Testament because it begins with a genealogy uh, pointing to uh, Jesus' lineage as the Messiah. But John's gospel begins with the same words as the first book of the Old Testament, in the beginning. John pointing out that, that God, who is the uncreated creator, is Jesus. Jesus is God, and he was in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. See, John wants to demonstrate that Christ is, is not a contradiction of the Old Testament, but he's the consummation of it. He fulfills it. He's the one who was prophesied from of old. One person we know unites the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And who is that person? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. For John's Jewish readers, this was important to hear. It was important to hear that Jesus is not in conflict with the Hebrew Bible, with the Old Testament, but he is actually the continuation and the consummation of it. And that's why... John connects Jesus, the Word, with creation. The creation that we know God spoke into existence. As we heard the familiar refrain in our first reading this morning from Genesis chapter 1, that refrain, and then God said, and God said, and God said, as God spoke all things into creation through the Word. And so Jesus wasn't part of creation, but he is one who stands above it. He is the divine son, the one who was with the Father and the Spirit, we read, in the beginning. Jesus is eternal. Secondly, we see that Jesus is a distinct person. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When we see in these verses when it says that Jesus was with God, it literally means he was towards God. John is pointing out that uh, Jesus is a distinct person in his own right. And yet even as a distinct divine person, he is God. Now, the early church wrestled with uh, how this could be possible. Right? How could God be many divine persons and yet be one God. We know that the Bible very clearly describes and um, very clearly points to the doctrine of uh, the Trinity and to God's triune nature. In Genesis chapter 1, again, we read that, that plural way that God referred to creation where he said, let us make man. And then we think about Jesus' baptism that moment in Jesus' ministry where he was in the water being baptized and the Father speaking and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The triune God present there at that very critical moment in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. 
And we can even think about uh, Jesus' own words from John chapter 17, where Jesus prays and says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit, three distinct divine persons, yet one God. Now, the great Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, he once said that in the Christian religion, there are two questions above all others which are difficult. And uh, he said the first concerns the unity of the three persons in the one essence of the Trinity. It's a great mystery. It's very difficult. The other, I'm sure that you can guess what it is, it's the union of the two natures in the one person in the incarnation. And you know, the church historically wrestled with the, the doctrine of the Trinity and trying to understand this great mystery. One of the old Christian creeds, the creed is a summary of the faith, one of the old Christian creeds known as the Athanasian Creed, named after Athanasius, who was a church father who defended the doctrine of the Trinity. It wasn't written by him, but it's attributed to him. Uh, seeks to help us understand this difficult doctrine. And the Athanasian Creed, and I'm just going to read a portion of it, reads, We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So, too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. And then continuing further down, the creed states, Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So, in everything... We must worship their trinity and their unity and their unity in their trinity. So we can ask, why, why does John, the very beginning of his gospel, point us to this intimate, loving, close relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, he does so to show us that God is a God who desires relationship, who lives in relationship and who has done so from before creation. Loved ones, this is a, a way that God is, is comforting us through his word because you and I have been called into this relationship, this relationship between the triune uh, persons of the Godhead. We have been called into the relationship because now by faith in Christ, God is our father. 
Christ is our brother, the Spirit is our advocate. And so at heart, our religion is, as many want to say, it's a relationship with the triune God, the eternal creator God. There's comfort for us in this. There's also a challenge for us here because in being united to Christ, you know, that means that we are also united to one another. And that means that we are to live in unity here and now, in unity as a church, in unity as husband and wife, as brothers and sisters, both in our earthly families and in our church family. We are to seek to have this loving relationship manifested among us here and now. John thoroughly points out that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is divine. I point out to you the uh, end of verse 1. John very clearly says, the word was God. The word was God. So Jesus was with God. So the word or the son is not the same as God the father. And yet, John says that he is God. And from early church history until the present day, you know, some have claimed that this phrase, the word was God, it merely identifies Jesus as a God uh, rather than identifying Jesus as truly God, as truly divine. They teach that Jesus was a created being. He's not actually an eternal being. A very well-known cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. And that translation has the little letter A in front of God here in John chapter 1, verse 1. Their translation reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And they had translated this way because they are uh, modern-day Arians, and so they deny the full deity of the Son, equal in essence with the Father and with the Spirit. And this is a blatant mistranslation of the Greek text. The way that it reads in reliable translations such as the ESV and the many other reliable translations that we have and that we refer to, it's very clearly that the Word was God. In a, a recent episode of Core Christianity, it's a radio show with Dr. Michael Horton and Pastor Adriel Sanchez. It's a radio show in which People call in or write in their questions, and Dr. Horton and Pastor Adriel uh, provide responses. I really recommend that you uh, listen to it. Michael Horton said, in response to a question about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, he said, I remember some Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my door and starting out with that mistranslation of John chapter 1, verse 1. And this might be a familiar encounter that many of you have had. And I went over and grabbed my copy of the Greek New Testament, and I turned to John 1, and I handed it to them. Um, so this is Michael Horton, world-class theologian and scholar, handing a copy of the Greek translation to Jehovah's Witnesses at his door. And I said, uh, let's have a conversation about this, because I had been talking to them about what it really means in the Greek. Here, you can just read... Uh, verses 1 th uh, through 2 there, as he's handing the copy of the Greek New Testament to 
the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Michael Horton comments and says, they of course couldn't. They couldn't read the actual Greek text because he could tell they had just been given a spiel. They had memorized a canned speech that they had been told by their leaders. And interestingly, Dr. Horton says, this is usually the way cults work. Right? People don't actually examine the evidence of the claims made by the cult. They're just told to believe these things. That's a big difference, says Dr. Horton, from Christianity. Christianity says, hey, we have nothing to lose here. Let's look at the Greek text. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at other passages that speak to this and that clarify it more. And let's gain understanding together. And they further point out that Jehovah's Witnesses will also often turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. We actually read it as our assurance of forgiveness this morning where we read that Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. And they'll point to the fact that, well, you see, Jesus was the firstborn. He was created. Well, what Paul means there is actually the fact that Jesus is the firstborn, not in the sense of not being eternal, in the sense that he was created in time, but that he is the first in the family of God. He is the first to be raised from the dead in glory. He is the first fruits of the harvest. He is the elder brother in the family. It really has to do with the fact that Jesus has preeminence over the church, that he is the highest king of the earth, referring to Psalm chapter 89, verse 27. And so very clearly the whole Bible points to the fact that Jesus was not creator not, not created, but he is the creator. He is God. And as such, he is worthy of our worship and of our adoration. Our closing hymn will be of the Father's love begotten. And, and listen to how the hymn describes Jesus' worth, his glorious divinity. O ye heights of heaven, adore him. Angel hosts, his praises sing. All dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent, every voice in concert ring. Christ, to thee with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, him enchant and high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be, honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory. He is worthy of our worship because he is our Lord and our God, as Thomas exclaimed in the upper room. Lastly, we see in these first three verses of John that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. And that word there is logos. And in, in Greek, and you know, we can get into uh, the deep uh, philosophical Greek understandings of this term, but I like the way that uh, David Murray Old Testament scholar at Westminster Seminary, the way he explains that according to this, the writer John, who had very simple Greek, um, John was probably not thinking these high philosophical uh, Greek thoughts uh, because according to the simple style in which he wrote, John was most likely writing about Jesus as simply the one who communicates from God. The logos is simply communication. And David Murray 
he explains that you know, every president has a spokesperson or a chief communications officer. And we know that it's an essential position, uh, pretty thankless, and it's a position that I'm sure none of us would want to have, having to speak for the president and answer questions on behalf of, of the president on difficult, complicated issues. Well, imagine then how much harder it would be to represent God, not just a man, and to represent God to a hostile world, not just to a bunch of journalists, and to represent God on the full range of the deepest and greatest issues facing all of mankind. You know, who could fill such shoes? Who could communicate so thoroughly and truly? Who could perform such a role? Well, Christ alone could. John, in essence, says, in the beginning was the communicator, and the communicator was towards God, and the communicator was God. Such a paraphrase of the Apostle John's famous opening to his gospel, it catches the essential truth of Jesus' job description, because Jesus is God's official spokesman. At various points in Christ's life, we know that the Father publicly announced Christ's appointment as his spokesman. For example, in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, at Jesus' transfiguration, we read that at that very moment, as Jesus was transfigured and his glory was revealed to his disciples, that a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Listen to him. Why? Because... He speaks my very word. He is my communicator. But the Son of God had started his communication not just during his earthly ministry, but he had started it long before even his incarnation. John Calvin said that God never spoke directly to mankind, but only and ever through his Son. Holy men of old knew God only by beholding him in his Son as in a mirror. John Calvin pointing out the fact that it is through Christ, it is through the Lord Jesus that we know God. So much so that Jesus could say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so even before the Old Testament, even before there was a beginning, as John tells us, there was an official communicator who was himself God's word, God's communicator. And Christ, loved ones, we know, is the most eloquent communicator of God that there is or that there ever will be. So much so, again, that he could say that he who has seen me has seen the Father because we are one. See, no public relations officer, no spokesperson could ever say this. He that has seen me has seen my client. He who that has spoken to me has spoken to the president. No man can represent another man that well, but God can represent God that well, explains David Murray. And that's why, loved ones, God's official endorsements said of Jesus, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. See, loved ones, Jesus' words to us are completely wholly reliable. And so let's take every opportunity to read them, 
to hear them, to live in obedience to them, and to seek to communicate them to others. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word made flesh and for the daily joy that we find in knowing you through Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Father, we pray that as we study this gospel, that you would grant faith to those who do not have it, that you would cause even those in our church who know the gospel story well to learn new things as that globe is turned and we see more and more aspects of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And Lord, that you would remind us consistently of the wonders of the gospel of Jesus. All praise be to you, O God, through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in unity with the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen.